The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, when you think about what it is, I just described three books that were involved in love. How to Love a Child, How to Love Yourself, How to Love a Lover, How to Love God. You know, there used to be all these things we could love, and they were not embarrassing to us. Now that we want to open that up, how does a woman really love a child? It's not automatic. Caring for children may be, worrying about children may be, protecting children may be, but that's not the same thing. When they're grown up, you know, who they are, when it's specific, what do you do? These are very complicated problems to me, and it seems to me to be the thread that undergirds or supports so much human activity is uh, where does our self-esteem come from? Uh, Where does our self-loathing come from? Uh, Why are we so driven in this direction? Um, What are these little pains and hurts? And it surrounds this question of being deprived of love, being bereft of it, um, therefore never knowing quite how to express it. Uh, at the same time, love so powerful, uh, so desperate, that you destroy the thing you love most in the world, uh, that you love God so that you're just absolutely transported by it, and the love is so complete and so absolute that you can't bear other people who have another idea about it and don't agree with your love, and therefore you expel or kill them, to have your whole life broken apart by or made perfect by romantic love, and then to lose the I mean, you can see as I'm rambling on and on that these are not simple things, and it's much larger than somebody not having love, being abused, and then abusing somebody else. Even if we're ideal, whether you are the, where the family is the most loving family in the world, you know, it's never going to be that flat, that simple, and that uh, predictable. It just seems to me that uh, there's nothing more interesting, compelling, mysterious, and unpredictable, you know, as the human heart.
Well, that is the novelist Toni Morrison showing us and uh, telling us better than I ever could express it in almost 300 episodes, just how it is that great art and how a great artist can still and maybe should still focus on these very, very basic human, emotional, uh, relationship-type things about what it is to love another person or to hate them, what it is to love, uh, what is the love of a child for its parents or parents for its children, or the love that people feel for God. How any of those things can go right, can go wrong, or can just sit somewhere in the middle. And what I wanted to do here is just spend the next hour and a half listening to the best of Toni Morrison. I've gone through about 10 or 12 hours of interviews with her that I've enjoyed over the years. And I thought about introducing different sections and uh, this and that, but I realized that uh, Toni Morrison does not need that. This is just too good to interrupt. And so what we're going to do, I'll just have this tiny introduction right here and then let her go. One thing that struck me is that the two books of hers that I most attached to are The Bluest Eye, her first novel from the early 70s, and Beloved from 1988. And both of those books deal with children in very different ways. The Bluest Eye is about a little African-American girl who wishes desperately that she had blue eyes. And Toni Morrison is wondering where, how it is that people come to loathe themselves, and that is part of that book. And if you read that book, there's the most incredible dialogue that I've ever seen written between children. It's really a, a miraculous thing. And Beloved, of course, is the novel about an escaped slave who murders her child rather than have it be caught uh, by the slaveholders who are on their way, who have found her, uh, rather than return that child to slavery. And then later in her life, the mother is haunted by the ghost of that child. And because childhood and because parenting and all of that, even just from what I just played for you, is such a concern for Toni Morrison. And because those are the parts of these interviews that I gravitated towards most. The first half hour, or 35 minutes or so, will be Toni Morrison starting with her grandparents, talking about how her grandparents made it from the South to Lorraine, Ohio, talking about her upbringing, her own childhood, and slowly it will begin talking, she'll begin talking about um, her experience as a parent and as a writer and what those things how they all intermixed together. And after that, and just look in the post description and you'll be able to find where these different sections begin. There will be excerpts of Toni Morrison talking about race and about good and evil and how it was that after a while she got bored with wanting to think about or write about evil and she instead wanted to think and write about what it means to be good, how to find decency. And then in the very last section, we will hear Toni Morrison just talk about writing. For about 10 minutes or so, it will be more general about writing. And in the very last part, it will be specifically about her writing about slavery, writing her novel Beloved, 
which I think I've said before is probably my favorite novel. And along the way, with writing sort of mixed in and with all these sections, I really do think that we have a great gift here. Sometimes it happens, and I think Seamus Heaney is another example, where fame and great art combine, and because of that, these people are interviewed over and over and over again, so that we are given a, a another gift, not just of their work, but of their words of these wonderful artists. And so I just invite you to sit back and sort of glory in the wisdom of Toni Morrison coming right up here. My grandmother left Alabama with six children and $30 going north with no idea where she was going. Her husband was in Birmingham, where he had gone to play the violin, to earn some money to send back. She said she saw white boys circling that farm, and she had to leave because her girls were reaching puberty. So she sent a message to her husband, and she said, if you want to see us again, be on this train at this time out of Birmingham. And they all got on the train, her and her little $30, and the train moved out of the station, and the children burst into tears because they thought they would never see their father again. And as they got about 25 miles outside of Birmingham, here he came. He had been hiding in the train. <laughs> but the point was, I always, and there are other stories, I, all my life, every time I would try something that I wasn't sure about or something different, I thought my grandmother and my grandfather were watching and that they would laugh at me. <laughs> If I said, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> oh, it's too hard. Because I was thinking, suppose I, at that time, I had, my sons were small. And I thought, could I get on a bus with $30 and just go somewhere, <laughs> not knowing anyone or what would happen? And I thought, no, I can't. But I can do this thing. So there was always this sort of critical chorus I mean, they weren't mad at me, but they did expect certain things. That <laughs> and that was always behind why I'm telling you that my job was to bear witness and not to be afraid and not to be angry and not to uh, fold and collapse because thinking about it was too hard. So it was a happy uh, event for them, and then the subsequent stops on that route to where they were headed, looking for work for mines that were asking for laborers, for mills, for women who could work in service, is an interesting and very typical story. And they ended up on the shores of Lake Erie, where I was born. In Ohio? Yes. What was Lorraine like when you were growing up? What kind of neighborhood uh, were, were, were you growing up in? It was an interesting place. I still think it's remarkable. In that part of Ohio, and I think in a large 
in many of those states, I never lived in a black neighborhood uh, because what we were living in were really just poor neighborhoods. So that I grew up with all of the other immigrants who were coming to this country. Uh, I'm thinking as I speak to you now of the house where my mother lives uh, at this moment and uh, the people on the street are named Tershak and Golini and my mother and a black woman named Mrs. Ross and so on. That's always been the case in that town because it was a steel town. And uh, people were coming from Mexico, from Eastern Europe, from Scandinavia, from everywhere, as well as black people coming to these centers just uh, after World War I and some, in some instances before in order to find work. So we had a kind of um, town that was, uh, I don't know, all the ideals that are probably purely rhetorical, existed in that little town. However, everybody, whether they were uh, Polish people or or what they used to call Slovenes in those days, uh, had their own halls, churches, and, um, you know, family life. That was not mixed. You know, you didn't exchange on those areas in those days. But there's one high school, four junior high schools, and we all went to the same school. So what was the African-American cultural center? Was it the church or was it something oh, yes. else, the church? Absolutely, the church. Part of it was Sunday, part of it was Sunday school, but a lot of it was taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. And what I remember most is the impetus and the necessity for my mother and her friends and for all of us to take food to people who needed it or to go clean somebody's house if they were bedridden. Uh, all sorts of chores uh, were taken for granted. When people got old, they didn't have any place for them to go, and if their families were indigent or couldn't take care of them, that was the responsibility of the women of the church or of the neighborhood. It was just a constant, constant uh, part of one's life. I think in the bluest eye, I recorded something similar that really happened, which is my sister and I would sleep in the same bed, and we might wake up, and there might be a child next to us, somebody who was in difficulty or the parent was sick or gone, and women in the neighborhood would take them in. And there might be some children living with us for, you know, two or three weeks or months or what have you. You know, it was a kind of violation of um, what everybody seems to think is important now, which is intimacy and privacy. But at the same time, it was a kind of sharing of um, other, you know, of responsibilities, social responsibilities was, we never, no one ever talked about it and said, you know, you ought to be a responsible member of the society. But everything people did was like that. When you look back to Lorraine, Ohio, and your mama and your papa and your brothers and your sisters, was those, do those experiences shape what you write today? the music, storytelling, what you learned, what they gave you. Very much. I'm completely informed by that community, by my extended family, the language particularly, not just the survival, but the way they spoke, you know, the language of uh, average, poor African Americans is always discredited, um, as though it was impossible for them to speak or they were stupid. But there was this incredible merging of new language and biblical language and sermonic language and street language and standard that created a third thing for me. A third thing? A third kind of yeah. way of expressing yourself. Yeah. They had, uh, they pulled from all the places. 
And that's what I tried to incorporate in Your mother books. loved music. Oh, yeah, she's a powerful singer, powerful singer. Yeah. Now, you didn't inherit that musical talent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I but you inherited, by osmosis, a sense of loving music and, yeah. and, and, and every, I mean, gospel infuses beloved. Oh, yes. Jazz infuses yes. jazz. Yeah. It was not entertainment for us, you see. I woke up to the sound of my mother's voice. And it was information. I knew her mood. Yeah. And it was a support system for us. It wasn't something where you went in order to feel good and then you came back. It was real information. It was powerfully influencing on me. There was this tradition of storytelling as well, oh, yeah. to pass on. Uh, have we lost that? I hope not. It's done professionally now, you right, know. Right, it is. You see there's professional storytellers. Right, and now there's you know, books on place. tapes right. and so on. But in those days, it's pre-television, of course, even pre-radio. I remember yeah. life without a radio. And when adults sat around and told stories, and more importantly, or equally as important, at some point we were invited to tell stories also. Yeah. And that's a you know, major performance for a child, to be able to repeat a story with a little variation, your own, yeah. for adults, in order to get, if it's a ghost story, to make them yeah. shiver yeah. again. To watch them enjoy that's your right. performance. That's right. So that was a very important part. Yeah. So just one more question. You you didn't start writing till you were 39 or 40. Is that because you didn't have the time or didn't know you had it in you? Like, what was the point in which you said, I'm going to write a novel? What changed? When I was teaching at Howard University after I got a master's at Cornell, I went to TSU and then I went back to Howard to teach. And I was young in my 20s. And I joined a group of faculty and writers who met, I think, once a month to read to each other and critique each other. Some of them were professional writers and some were not. Um, and so I brought to these meetings... Um, little things I had written for classes as an undergraduate, uh, some fiction, some not, and so on. And they had really, really good lunches, really good food during these meetings. But they wouldn't let you continue to come if you were just reading old stuff. So I had to think up something new if I was going to continue to have this really good food and really good company outside of the my colleagues. So I started writing, and I remember very clearly I was writing with a pencil. I was sitting on the couch, writing with a pencil, trying to think up something and remembering what I just described. And I was tablet was that legal pad, you know, yellow with the lines. And I had a baby. Uh, my older son was barely walking. And he spit up on the tablet. And uh, I was doing something really interesting, I think, with a sentence, because I wrote around the 
puke because I figured I could always wipe that away. But I might not get that sentence again. <laughs> so I wrote a bit of that. I went to the meetings. They thought it was very interesting. It was just, you know, maybe five or six pages. And they were very encouraging. And then I left and I went to Syracuse, et cetera, et cetera. And in the mornings before my children were awake, I would go back and finish that. And then it took five years, by the way, to write that little book because I wasn't thinking about publishing. I was thinking about that narrative and what I wanted to say, you know. So that's really how I got started. Oh, my, I can't imagine myself not being a mother, even though a good part of my life I wasn't. Um, in a funny way, being a mother was extremely liberating for me. I know that people think of it as, you know, added responsibility, narrowing perhaps of one's choices. You can never sort of leave, uh, as farmers used to say, have a brother who had a farm, can't leave the stock, so he couldn't go anywhere. And it has that feeling, I think, for many people. But in another sense, it just freed me up. It freed me up, and I didn't have to conform uh, to certain other roles, expectations, because, you know, paying attention to my children, actually listening to them, uh, recognizing who they were, uh, was hard for me. Uh, at the same time, it was a delight for me. Uh, it was the only thing that was of more importance to me than writing. Uh, it took precedence over everything I did. Uh, and their demands of me were entirely different from what other people demanded of me. Uh, the things that other people cared about, they didn't. And what they pr demanded of me, the reason it was so liberating, was because I could deliver it. They wanted me competent, first of all, and they wanted me to have a sense of humor, and they wanted me to be able to deal with emergencies and not collapse, and to be able to reproduce these things in a safe way so that they could do it. Uh, they asked these things of me, and they were, as we were discussing earlier, I could see in their face when I was not delivering it, when I was um, faking, as it were, uh, pretending. Uh, they knew it instantly. And um, so it freed me up to be this complicated person I thought I always was. No, I mean, we really do underestimate the brilliant little kids. We test them and we see them do ballet. We think that's where they're smart, that's not. They don't understand language. They have to find out from all sorts of ways what you really mean. Children know when they're being bought by their parents with toys. They know when they're being, you know, given no freedom whatsoever under the guise of freedom. They understand it fully. And if you don't think so, all you have to do is remember what you knew when you were that age. You knew when the smiles were fake. You knew when people walked in the room and rather you left. You knew when you were being dismissed, even while people were embracing you. That reading that children give is very much a survival instinct in them. Even when I wrote The Bluest Eye, the first book, mm -hmm, I was really writing a book I wanted to read. I mean, I didn't know. I hadn't seen a book in which black 
girls were center stage. They were usually, I don't know, somebody's joke yeah. on the periphery. You somewhere. were writing it for yourself, mm -hmm. not for any audience. Mm -mm. Not for African Americans, not for anybody, no, no, for yourself. For me. I wanted to read it. I wanted to read a book that had no codes, no little notes explaining things to white people, no little uh, clues, just something that I already knew and what was more provocative about it. And I had a major, major question in my mind at that time, which was how does a child learn self loathing uh, for racial purposes? Where does it come from? Who enables it? How is it infectious? And then what might be the consequences? And what were the answers? You learn it from the society at large. Institution. Institution, but more importantly than that, at a certain time, the self-loathing can be reinforced by one's own family, one's own community. You know, that con the concept of what is ugly it can just be reinforced by people next door. Um, I remember girls who weren't blonde, who, were, who longed for that and felt terrible about themselves. I mean, all this physical beauty business is painful if you have to do what you do now, which is yeah. cut yourself up in yeah. little bits. Most of us have no idea of the pain it causes people because the society and the culture and the media and the magazines and the television and all the commercials bombard them with what it is to be attractive. And they define attractiveness in our culture and they find what's good and what's bad. So that all of a sudden, if you don't look <laughs> like that, you say, I don't like myself. Oh, you, how do I go change it's myself? It's death. It's interior death. You never have an opportunity to develop what's really valuable, which is grace, yeah. balance, health, virtue, all those good things that each of us can be. But now, if you're going to worry, worry, worry about hair and skin color, <laughs> how tall you are and how short. I mean, I don't mean that self-esteem is not bound up in right. some of these things, yeah. but I'm talking about obsessive. Self-esteem is bound up in everything. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. You raised your two kids. Your mm -hmm. husband was an architect, mm -hmm. uh, left, uh, and you had to raise your own two sons, right? It's terrible. It it's was? It's very hard. Yeah. Awful. So what did you call on to get it done? My family. My brothers, my mother, my grandfather, my sisters. You know, my little saying is you, one person cannot raise a child. Neither can two. <laughs> you need everybody. Yeah. You need everybody you know. And if supportive, I don't, supportive, that's right. Supportive. Well, I'll cry. I didn't live in that neighborhood anymore. I lived in New York. I was working as an editor. I was running up and back and forth to Yale teaching. And I had these children. So I had to send them home in the summer. My family had to come. I had to keep very close touch with those people. And even so, it was difficult, very difficult. They were guys, after all, and uh, willful. But that, you need everybody. And that's but it seems that there's a breakdown in that. In what? The family stuff? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The family. Yeah, the, yeah. In the white, black, yeah. you know, yeah, in all cultures that's it's right. happening. In, in Oriental yeah. cultures as well. A breakdown in family. And you can't have a conversation in America about family values because, and we're going to talk about this uh, over the weeks in this broadcast, because of the notion that it's become politicized. Mm. 
-hmm. You know, if Dan Quayle raises it, then it's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. it, 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 it gives it a negative spin mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. happens mm -hmm. because of Murphy Brown. Mm -hmm. you, you, you fail to have an engaging conversation about what you just talked about. You couldn't have made it oh, without no. family. Yeah, because you wanted to write and you exactly. wanted to support exactly. and you need to do things. Exactly. You had your, your mother. Is your mother still alive? Barely. She's Barely. still, but she's alive. Yeah. They live in the South or she? In Ohio. In Ohio. She lives in a small town? Same town? Sure. Lorraine, Ohio. She's still there. <laughs> she has an interesting first name. Was it Rom? Rama. Rama. Rama is a city. <laughs> they picked her name out of the Bible like that. You know, he's open the Bible and do yeah. like this. <laughs> she got her name that way. She yeah. didn't like it. Yeah. Who's had the most influence on you? I picked those two, my mother and my father, yeah. for different reasons, for different reasons. I come to New York. <clears throat> I'm uh, divorced. I have two small children. I live wherever I live. Um, there's a classmate of mine named Betty Rose. She's divorced. She has two children. She lives in Queens. There's another woman. In other words, <laughs> they're we became a kind of group of people who lived not in the neighborhood together, but behaving that way. Tony Cade was excellent at that. She lived New York, then Georgia, then Philadelphia. I remember her coming into my house with two bags of groceries on on. No one asked her. She didn't say she was coming. She just appeared. And she set the groceries down. And she said, I'll take care of the children today. You go do what you have to do. So it was that. You didn't have to ask everybody, particularly those of us who were without males, you know, controlling males in our lives. Uh, you know what I mean? Not bad, but, you know, anyway, you know. <laughs> and there was a kind of singularity uh, and that intimacy that instinct knowing exactly what a sister needed before she could even articulate it was what was so important yeah I mean it's especially I, I kind of wanted to touch on Beloved for a second I feel like you know we got to talk just a, a second on Beloved sure there was this wonderful like little in one of the prefaces of one of the reprints where you say, um, around 1981, I was fired or quit Random House. <laughs> and I think my question is, which was it? <laughs> but more importantly, less gossipy, could of Beloved have been written if you had, if you had been working? No. No, I, the reason the fired quit thing, I, the books that we have extolled that I edited were not on bestseller lists, which is to say they didn't make any money. So I was there for 19 years, so that's pretty long. But eventually I began to edit part-time. One day a week I would come into the office I began to take one day off and teach at Yale. And they said, well, what are you doing taking one day off teaching at Yale? 
And I said, well, nobody edits anything in here on Fridays. <laughs> All you do is get on the phone or have lunch or something. So it's not a productive day. So they sort of agreed with that. But subsequently... So anyway, when I left, uh, I remember going home happy that I didn't have to go to work, not even frightened about not having a job. But I have a pier in front of my house on the river, and I remember going out there and sitting down, and I was very uh, uncomfortable or jittery or anxious or something, and I didn't understand quite what I was feeling. And then I thought, oh, this is what is known as happiness. (laughs) So this is how it feels. (laughs) And then I began, I literally, you know, began, beloved, knowing that this girl, I could see her uh, walk up out of the river she had on clothes and a little straw hat. And at that time, in, you know, writing about a real story, you know, that I would elaborate on about Margaret Garner, uh, who symbolized the pressure of the abolitionists and the pressure of the slave owners about what shall we do with this woman who kills her child and the abolitionists lost. They wanted her murdered, I mean, executed, because that would suggest that she was responsible for her children. And the slave owners wanted her taken back because she was to be guilty of theft, the theft of herself and the theft of her children. So in taking that, and I was trying to figure out what about the child she did kill. And uh, was that a good thing? Was that a correct thing? Was that a bad thing? Uh, The mother-in-law didn't seem to know in the newspapers. She said, I didn't know whether to hug her or condemn her. Uh, So I thought, well, the only person who really knows whether that was a good thing to do would be the dead daughter. And if I can get her in, you know, I'm not, I don't know. There might be circumstances in which I might have done a similar thing, or anybody might. But to ask the one person who does know or thinks she knows and is the true victim, and that meant that I had to have this character who could be a ghost or might not be or whatever, you know, to sort of move between the living and the dead, but to have a desire, powerful desire, as children do, but she's, you know, grown. But she still has the ferocity of a, of a murdered child. <laughs> you know, they never get enough. But it's true that what you suggested at the beginning, it was after I left the daily grind of editing. Was it a lot of research for Beloved specifically? Because I I can never encounter 
much conversation about you and your research. I've, I've seen you talk I about re- it. I had done this book called The Black Book. Mm, of course. And in that book was the newspaper articles about her. And I didn't want to know anymore because then I would have to, you know, toe the line. But just that what they said was enough. And I'll tell you, the backstory is, at that time, this book came out in 83 or something, but at that time, um, women uh, who were being progressive and, you know, trying to knock down barriers and crack open ceilings, they were intimating that one of the things that would make a woman free was to not have children. Therefore, she should be able to uh, have access to abortion. And that was understood to be freedom. And I was thinking just the opposite. Nothing, I never felt more free in my life until I had children. Hmm. They were just the opposite of a burden. I mean, the, anyway, that's another story. But I, I thought, but for black women enslaved to have a child that you were responsible for that was really yours that was really freedom because they took those children you didn't have children you may have produced them but they weren't yours they could be sold were sold to be a mother was the unbelievable freedom and so when Margaret Garner cut that girl's neck she was saying this child is mine and to claim her even if it had to go and become bloody nevertheless that was the that was the freedom that was the uh, ability that was the mothering So it was just the opposite, you understand, of what some of the discourse was about the nature of freedom for contemporary women as opposed to slave women. Yeah, I was wondering, because, you know, it's especially, um, were you in the process of writing Beloved? I specifically think of the moment for me that was most suggestive and most shattering Um, there's that just abhorrent moment and what I think the book, at least for me as a reader, sort of suggested is this abhorrent moment where um, Setha's being milked by a school teacher Uh and her husband is trapped above. Yeah, is trapped above. She herself is being horrifically violated. Her body and her subjectivity, she's the one experienced this violation her husband witnesses it, but she survives to restructure herself to integrate that loss, and he's shattered by it. He can't survive that. Were you aware of how, what an extraordinary like, guide to reality that would present for many readers? I mean, when I think of, when I think, guys, when I think about gender in my family, Half the shit that the women in my family endured 
Just the minor shit would have broken all of us men. <laughs> and there's something about the ability that, certainly in the books you write of women, to be able to integrate horrors in their identity. No, he couldn't watch that. Even Paul D., when she says that Vader, he says they use cowhide on you, which is raw, you know, and it hurt. And she said, and they took my milk. milk. And he says, they used cowhide. And she said, no, you don't understand. They took my milk. This is, well, she's, this is her motherhood. She has food for her children. The scars, I don't know what they look like. I have never seen them. I know they're horrible. Somebody said they looked like a choke cherry tree. I don't know. But what they did, <laughs> that was awful and unimaginable and hurtful is they took her milk, which is for her children. You know? Yeah, the inability to look for the male sort of masculine sort of <laughs> world to look into that right, right. space. And he couldn't even stand to see it, her husband. Yeah. Which I can imagine would be true. But if you're in it, I mean, she can't see it. I mean, she can feel it, but mm. it's not, you know, a big, oh, my God, picture. It's what's inside. And what she's doing, she's going to mother her children. That's what she is. Um, I wasn't sure whether she was asking about the love coming out of my soul or Oprah's, but I will tell you the former. Um, I was thinking really not about slavery. I was thinking about the ways in which women love everything more than themselves. Uh, their children, their husbands, their nurturing qualities were so profound. And uh, we were being asked to give those up in order to make greater choices as liberated women, you know, to be more selfish. And that argument between the selfless nurturing woman and the selfish narcissistic woman, that line was very close and it's difficult to negotiate. That's really what I was thinking about. And then I thought, you know, we're being encouraged to take motherhood as a choice. We don't have to have children. We don't have to yearn for children. And maybe freedom is not having children. Then I thought, but for certain women to be able to be responsible for their children was the most freedom the most identity, the most dangerous thing that they could do. And those were slave women whose children they did not own. They could have the child, but it wasn't theirs. It could be sold at any moment, taken away at any age. So to actually have your child, bear it, and be responsible for it, was an act of such revolutionary proportions, it cast a long shadow on contemporary urgings vis-a-vis -a, -vis a woman's place. So the story that I had just read a newspaper article about, about this woman who said, no, I'm not doing that. This child is mine. Her life is mine. She's my child. I will see how she lives and dies. And of course, it was a crime, and it was a sin. But on the other hand, it was this other gesture 
it was complicated. And that's how I began doing the research on that concept in slavery. Tell me the story of growing up and, and, and this young man who came there um, and, and didn't know epithets towards African Americans until he learned. That, you mean in my life? Yes. Oh, yeah. I was, <laughs> well, this town, I lived, this little steel town, and it was full of immigrants and black people and Mexicans and all sorts of people who were coming there for work because right. it was a steel town. And I remember being in the second grade, and I read before I could, came to school, so I was a fairly quick reader, and the teachers would frequently choose a student who couldn't read to sit next to me, you know, teaching the blind children or reading for them. And this young Italian boy came into class, and my last name was a W, so I sat in the back, and his was Z or something. Anyway, he was put next to me. That's right, Wofford. And we were good friends. I taught him how to read, and he was young enough to learn. He's very smart. And I remember the day, this is like six weeks later, when he entered the class, and he couldn't sit next to me, and he couldn't speak to me, and he had learned in six weeks not only the word nigger, but what that meant and how disempowering it was for him to be my friend. It was uh, shocking because I felt bereft, but I also felt that there was some trauma. I mean, I felt that later that he had experienced. You know, if somebody says, oh, you know that person you used to like? Yeah. Well, that person is no longer worthy of those affections that you had. So you've lost your judgment, your instincts, you know, all of these things are separated. Now, if that happens to you and you have some problems with national identity or religious identity or what have you, it's very comfortable to have a whole group of people who are unlike you, who you can surmise and hope are inferior. You know, we're encouraged to believe that there's something uh, about writing that is sort of perfect and flawless and doesn't involve race. Um, it's confusing because every excellent classical book that we've ever read or been taught is all about its race, its people, its region, even if that race happens to be the white race. It's still about that. Young writers shouldn't be afraid or even discouraged from including specifically racial matters uh, in their texts. It doesn't have to lose race in order to be valuable. Uh, that's a trick, uh, that you have to surpass or transcend race in order to enter uh, you know, the pantheon of literature. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous on its face because you know that it only is applicable to black people. Nobody asks anybody else in the world to transcend race other than black people. But you don't have to use it as a kind of a crutch, uh, as a kind of finger pointing. It's not, as you seem to be suggesting, uh, also is a ploy. Uh, it's not good literature because it's about black life. 
uh, just as books are not good because they're about, I don't know, Polish life or Irish life. The point is that you use whatever is important to the story. Currently, I think uh, there is some debate about the uses to which uh, the culture functions in literature. And I would advise any young writers to do, I mean, if you're not going to be free in that area to make your own choices, where on earth, you know, can you be free? Uh, you can write detective stories that have never mentioned the race of the people who are involved, unless it's important. Uh, love stories, the same way. Uh, I mentioned detective stories because I read a lot of detective stories, and I'm aware of so many written by, say, African-Americans that have no mention of race in it, or by uh, white people that are about race. So what I'm trying to suggest to you is that the choices are wider. It's an embarrassment of riches as far as what can be done that young writers should take advantage of, but not to think that the absence of racial identification is necessarily a plus. That's what I was trying to suggest. Arthur Ashe was here, the late Arthur oh, Ashe. Yes. And he said to me, as he said in one other place, he said in a much quoted comment, he said, <coughs> living with AIDS is easier than living with racism. It's a harder struggle against mm. racism for me mm. than it is against AIDS. Mm. What it meant to me is that there's no way for the rest of us to understand that daily encounter. Which brings me to my question to you. Do you still have that encounter? Do you, Toni Morrison, Pulitzer Prize winner, successful, honored in the halls of academe, mm. etc still have that encounter? Yes, I do, Charlie, but let me tell you, that's the wrong question. Okay, what's the right question? How do you feel? Not you, Charlie Rose, right. but don't you understand that the people who do this thing, who practice racism, right. are bereft. There is something distorted about the psyche. It's a huge waste, and it's a corruption and a distortion it's like it's a profound neurosis that nobody examines for what it is. It feels crazy. It is crazy. And it leaves, it has just as much of a deleterious effect on white people and possibly equal as it does black people. I always knew that I had the moral high ground all my life. I always thought those people who said I couldn't come in the drugstore and I had to sit in these funny places, I couldn't you go in the park. You felt superior to them I from did. day one. And I thought they knew that I knew that they were inferior to me, morally. I always thought that. And my parents always thought that. You said your father was racist because he always felt like he was he always superior. Thought, that's right. He always felt superior. And that was a form, you know, of, of, defend, of defensive racism. But if... If the racist white person, I don't mean the person who is examining his consciousness and so on, doesn't understand that he or she is also a race, it's also constructed, it's also made, and it also has some kind of serviceability. But when you take it away, I take your race away, and there you are, all strung out, and all you got is your little self. And what is that? What are you without racism? Are you any good? Are you still strong? Are you still smart? Are you still like yourself? I mean, these are the questions. It's, part of it is, 
yes, the victim, how terrible it has been for black yeah, people. You don't like that. I'm not a victim. I refuse to be one. And the victim is the other person who is morally inferior and that's who what, that's a has serious to hold question. on to of course. racism if you to have somehow to hold, that's for a, his or her own self-esteem and definition. If you can only be tall because somebody's on their knees, then you have a serious problem. And my feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it then give white people some free advice. <laughs> They're all in my books. <laughs> <laughs> and the advice is to come to grips. Of course. With your own fears. Absolutely. Your own Look at fears. It. Absolutely. Your own fears, your own history, and what you need. What do you need this for? You know, it's not, I said glibly a moment ago, and it feels good. It must feel good, otherwise they'd give it up. It's wasteful. Right. It costs a lot. It's ugly. It hurts. What are you paying for that it's for? driven by fear. That's right. Yeah. Give me your take on Rodney King and Los Angeles and all of that experience. The most remarkable thing to me about Rodney King and what happened afterwards was people kept saying, oh, this terrible explosion. Oh, the riots. Oh, this awful and could have been avoided or what is it about what struck me most about the people who were burning down shops and stealing was how long they waited the restraint not the spontaneity the restraint you realize the moment to be anarchic was when we saw those tapes when we first saw those tapes they waited for justice they waited how long was that? Nine months? A year? Yeah. They waited for justice almost a year and didn't come. No one talks about the fact that no one ran out into the streets as I wanted to. I was sitting in there with my son. It was like a ballet. It was unbelievable. And I think everybody felt that way. And no one, they didn't do a thing. They waited. That's amazing. That's amazing to me. Listen, let me hear you tell you something. Poor people are the most creative people in the world. Because they have to be. They have to be. They think it up. So, neither one will help you. I mean, it's sort of nice. I'd rather be not ugly, <laughs> but <laughs> just to get through the street, you know. <laughs> but it's more important to be a three-dimensional person. It's much more important. And one of the ways you get to be a whole person is you stop thinking about your little self. Am I pretty? Am I not pretty? Oh, this, eh, eh. And then start doing something serious for somebody else. And when she, <laughs> I got a fan group out there, but <laughs> but when the two of them, both the man, the lover, and the loved, have been seriously damaged, 
or felt damaged about something that happened to them out of their control. And their regret is not is more than regret. It's deep. It's eating them. It's poisoned them. And almost everything they do is a result of that. And then something happens where they have to seriously look after, care for somebody else they both love. And the time they spend doing that is part of the ritual which will get them to a place where they can stop. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, but you know, that's not all that you are. Somebody your mother didn't like, somebody that hurt your member of your family and your family dissed you. That doesn't contribute to your escape from that chain that you um, hang around your own neck. So I just wanted that to happen. Even when it was the glorious, glorious beauty of a glorious black woman. It ain't enough. (laughs) Well, my, uh, you know, being good and doing good, that is having a moral sensibility, has always been more interesting to me, more complicated an idea than evil. Uh, Evil, it seems to me, gets more play, Uh, theatrics. People are attracted to it. It has a top hat, so to speak, and a costume, and it speaks the loudest. Um, But it's really boring, fundamentally because it can sort of refine new ways to do the same thing. Um, You know, in a sense, it's a sham, screaming all the time like a petulant child. Um, And we fall for it. The press falls for it. If it bleeds, it leads. I mean, and it's just numbing and boring. On the other hand, artistically, we have treated good as boring. You know, um, Dante's Paradiso is like, who reads it? Everybody reads the Inferno and maybe a little Purgatory. Uh, we're much more interested in Goethe's Faust when Faust is, you know, seduced. And by the time we get to Paradise, it's like everybody begins to yawn. And it always seemed to me to be just the opposite. Um, I understand that people had to be chased away from living a corrupt life by knowing how horrible it was going to be for them if they ended up in hell. And, and paradise was always like no work and lots of food and you don't have to do much. So I think we've inherited a concept that is just, you know, it's destructive. So I, that's a long speech to tell you that for me what's interesting is the negotiation of a moral position. Do no harm love somebody uh, and respect yourself and do some work you respect. Uh, All of that is reduced, simplified notions. The philosophers have spent their lifetime trying to imagine what it is like to live a moral life, what morality is, what existence is, what responsibility is. So, and literature does it in another way um, and depends a little bit on some of the simplistic things I've said and some of the more complicated and more subtle things that are revealed in 
large philosophical uh, schools of thought and certainly some of the um, all over the world people who have thought about this problem it is the problem um, maybe the world needs us to think about it since nobody else seems to be I mean, cabbages are not thinking about it. Somebody's got to think about it. So here we are, human beings, a little bit of time. Some people are going to be born later. Some people have already been born. What are you going to do? You're going to do something you respect. You're going to try to find out what's going on. And you're going to try not to contribute to other people's grief. I can understand causing pain if I don't know what it feels like. But if I know what it feels like, if I know what physical pain feels like, if I know what rejection feels like, if I know what humiliation, shame, contempt, and hatred feels like, I can't give that back to you. Because I know that hurts. Now, there might be something I can do out of ignorance that might cause you pain, but not that. Now, that seems to me to be figuring that out as small and as narrow as that concept is, is much more interesting <laughs> than trying to figure out how to take something away, how to make people believe exactly the way I do, how to strangle somebody, how to express myself violently. Uh, it just seems more interesting to me. So in that sense, a larger than a religious sense, that has informed a great deal of what I have been working on. And part of moving on is, as you said, caring for other people. Outside of the novel lately, outside of this novel, um, you've given a number of talks. You gave a wonderful lecture at the Harvard Divinity School about two years ago. You gave another lecture at um, UC Santa Cruz around the concept of the good, in, and particularly in literature. Uh, and I think I see you working through some ways of representing the good here. But what made you interested in that as an idea, as a concept? Good. And how do you define good? I, uh, for years now, I've been just bored, bored, bored <laughs> with evil. It's just not interesting. You can always, yeah, okay. Blood, guts, whatever. But there's no, you know, I think I said in that lecture that uh, evil wears a top hat and it has uh, tap shoes and a cape and it's on stage and it's hollering and goodness is always backstage sort of waving. But it takes up all the energy because it is nothing. It gotta have a costume. It's gotta be loud. It's gotta be bloody. Are you gonna do a double take or not? Will you do a double take if there's blood running? But for me, you know, I just wanna fall asleep. But what is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it. It's because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting 
I was going to say word, concept, idea, and I don't mean just in a religious sense. You know, for Americans, we think goodness is weak. Weak. Um, and, uh, you know, even in this recent sort of spate of uh, police people shooting young men and saying they did it, I mean, they know it's not true, but they say they did it because they thought their life was in danger. And when you think of shooting somebody in the back because you're scared, think about that. They're running that way, away from you, because they're scared. And you shoot them because you're afraid for your life. That is the most cowardly, mm-hmm. the, the truly weak. And a coward with a gun is the most dangerous thing in the world. But it's sort of embarrassing why Americans think they have to have... Well, I know. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into the psychology of it all. But uh, what is this area that we don't think about? And why have we trivialized um, war, 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 good ending, close the book, close the movie, somebody's saved? You know, but the whole 90% of it is this other stuff. Do they really think they can hold my... Listen, one small thing and then I'll shut up. Don't shut I, up. <laughs> I did an introduction. I was asked to do an introduction and I agreed to do it for a collection of works by Primo Levi. Now I had read some of his things, but not everything. And they're doing like everything. So it's really, and I was really struck, not only for the obvious, you know, the brilliant writing and sensitivity and so on, but he's in one of those camps. And what he's interested in is how the people, the prisoners, uh, not just survive, but how human they are no matter what the gesture. He is not interested in the Nazi guards. If they do something, he'll mention it, but he is not in, doesn't have any inquiry. They're just, they could be, you know, automatons. He talks about language that way. I think some of you have read these things and he's walking, starving and thirsty along a little tiny path with other prisoners and there's a, it's cold, and he takes an icicle off of the roof, I mean the eave, to suck on, and a Nazi guard comes and takes it away, and he says, what'd you do that for? Why? Vor. And the guard said, there is no why here. Mm-hmm. Boom, language is over. I mean, you know, communications in that sense. So his thrust is always these 
or they're small, but they're profound gestures. Not even of compassion, just the instinct to be human under those circumstances. Which is not to say there weren't fights and so on and so on. But he mentions those and he glorifies them without, you know, waving a flag. And it's overwhelming. Instead of, oh my God, look at Goebbels or, you know, some other thing. He's looking at this other thing. It's the most extraordinary experience I think I've had in reading Holocaust, so-called Holocaust literature. Is, is some of the things he does. And he's not an idiot because he's written some... I mean, he's not a, f- a fool who's only looking for good things. It's not that. Because he writes some really devastating poetry about that situation. But anyway, I mention that because it's one of the... It's not to say that there aren't other texts, particularly historical ones like that, but this was, you know, some time ago, but it still hit me that with very few people writing, is there ever this amazement that I feel when something is preternaturally good without waving a little flag? Do you remember when um, somebody went into an Amish school and shot up all you know, got the teachers out and shot up all the little girls. And the Amish people went to the shooter's wife and children and asked her, did she need anything? And they buried their children and rebuilt the school. But what was interesting to me was there had been another school shooting about a month before. What was interesting to me is that the story became not the death of those girls. The media was there and they were that the Amish didn't talk about it. They said, God is the judge. They (laughs) had nothing else to say. So it was that silence and their unwillingness to dwell on what they perceived as evil. They did another thing. And over and over again, there was this constant thing in the press that they wouldn't go on television they're not going on the radio not doing any of that they were just taking care of business Mm -hmm. on their job what happened to me was I was like I mean little did I know how it would turn out later but at the time I thought this is impossible this election (laughs) you can guess which one it was and I thought, oh. and okay, so I thought, oh, this is terrible. But what I knew was that I was not going down. You know, I get up early in the morning to write because I'm very smart early in the morning. <laughs> right now, it's about over. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't. And so Peter called me up. It was Christmas. And he usually says, hi, how are you doing? So this time he called me up, and he said, how are you doing? I said, uh, I don't know, Peter. I said, I feel so tired. I was writing, and I can't write. And I was talking about what had happened uh, politically that had made me so, uh, as you say, paralyzed, or not doing it, or not thinking about it. And he started screaming, 
No, 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 no. This is the time when artists go to work. Not when everything is all right. Not when it looks sunny. It's when it's hard. And I thought about all those people who wrote in prisons, in gulags, under duress, got mur- I mean, you know, they were doing it. So I'm sitting here going, uh, I can't write. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. <laughs> I, I tell my students, I tell everybody this, when I open, begin a creative writing class, I say, I know you've heard all your life, write what you know. Well, I am here to tell you, you don't know nothing. Ain't that the truth. So do not write what you know. Think up something else. (laughs) Write about a young Mexican woman working in a restaurant and can't speak English. Or write about a famous mistress in Paris who's down on her luck. Or, you know, I give them all these ideas, and I have to tell you, they really do well. They write way out of the box. Once you open that door and say, you know, I don't want to hear about your grandmother, I don't care about your lover, you know, forget that. Let's go somewhere else. Born in Ohio, we've talked about this before. Father was a welder, mother was a homemaker. Yes. Um, Howard University, mm-hmm. Cornell for a master's in art, mass MA, back to Howard to teach, um, came to New York, yes. began to work at Random House in publishing, began to write. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it has been said, a sense of loneliness, a sense of what? I've given several different answers, one of which is loneliness, uh, one of which is wanting to read something like that. I wanted to read that book that I wrote, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, But certainly there was a sense that there was a void. It wasn't as big as I thought it was, because there were other writers that had contributed to that whole area. Paul Marshall was one, for example. But I wanted to write about, I wanted to put centrally this little person who never appeared in American literature except as a joke, which is a little black girl with no redeeming qualities whatsoever, except she was lovely. And starting was sort of a fluke. I joined a little writing group and they were fun. They were professional writers. I wasn't. It gave you a place to go. It gave me a place to go and they had good food. They were great company. (laughs) And they encouraged me, and I wrote a little story that subsequently became The Bluest Eye. But the fact was, once I began to put that little story together, just doing it at night, you know, when the children were asleep, or early in the morning before they woke, it was just a, an interior life, a stretch, a safe place or a dangerous place that I always wanted to have near me, always wanted to have access to, never wanted to be without an idea that was narrative or novelistic, never. And the few times that I have not had an idea to fret after I've completed a book 
have been very bleak times for me indeed. So for me, it was a kind of uh, coherence, I think. And I learned how to do it better and better and better. And I'm always trying to get students to recognize when they are at their best, where and under what circumstances. Uh, for me, it's compulsion. It's not discipline. It's not even an effort of the will. It's an inability to not do it. I just cannot not think that way. And I cannot for long not write. For me, it's a kind of an extension almost of reading, which I did all my life and do. Uh, still, but it's, it's, I am absolutely happiest and at my most, it's risky, it's happy, it's difficult, it is absolutely the place I prefer to be, is working out and solving problems of fiction writing, sentences, this word, that word, and everything I've ever known in the world, everything I've ever read, bits and pieces of that seem to come together and are useful in the construction of fiction for me. I have a place now, finally, after all these years. I used to write in the kitchen, any place I could find, but I have a study in my house. I live near the caller, just down the road from Piermont, uh, in Grandview, and uh, it's right on the Hudson. So I can look at the water all the time uh, while I'm writing in my own study. It's exhausting, and it's great, delicious, difficult work. It's hard. Uh, it's, for me, it's slow. I have to write over so much. I have to reselect, reshape uh, so much. Um, but it's so rewarding when it's close to where you really think that note should be struck. Um, once in a while, it goes along at a clip, and it's sort of lovely, and it, and it rests there and even survives in the final book that way. For me, it doesn't happen that way much. But the process for me is totally engaging, totally mesmerizing. I get very vague about everything else, everything else. And it's the lights are right on what I'm doing. And when I'm not doing it, even when I was coming down here, uh, I'm thinking about a book that I uh, am in the process of writing now. And I hear phrases that strangers say that remind me of things that characters believe or activities that I remember. We were talking about the old Liberty Boy. Liberty Magazine, for those of you too young to remember, was a well-known magazine that cost a nickel, and it used to be sold door to door. And the person who sold it, we called, was usually a kid, newspaper type, you know, job, the Liberty Boy, and was laughing about the Liberty Boys with somebody. And it occurred to me that that was exactly what a certain character had done. So all of life then becomes the canvas, shrunk, uh, reorganized uh, for the book. So the process is now always, always there, always with me. 
it's difficult, but I use what I think are methods that um, maybe actors and actresses use. When you read, when you have a vague character or you try to make it specific, fully realized, and you want to be in that person's head if you're on stage, uh, to wear the clothes, uh, wear the shoes, behave the way that person would. So you have to enter or project and know, you know, where they part their hair and what kind of soap they would wear and what food they don't like, whether or not it appears in the book. You try to imagine all those things. And that works for me. I can uh, suspend, I mean, I don't judge my characters that way. Uh, whether I want to have lunch with them or not is something quite different. But you have to love them for the moment of their portrayal. Whether they are uh, men, women, old, young, children, what have you. That's a big problem for novice writers as well as writers who've written a long, long time. You can't love it too much. Uh, I learned that more with my second book than anything else. Um, the technical is the expression of the spiritual. Eudora Welty's work is radiant because of her technical expertise and the way she works it. You cannot rely on simply this sort of inspirational connection. Um, it's like you're talking to a character and they talk all the time and they want you to do this. You have to suddenly realize they don't writing that book. I am. This is my book. I write over and over again. I am not afraid to write badly anymore because I can write it over. I used to get so discouraged after writing something an hour or two hours, it was just awful. And I thought I could never, it's ridiculous. You throw it away and you write it again and then again. And you don't love it because you did it. Um, the first rule is probably if you love it a little too much, it's probably not very good. Um, so you just work it. And your process has to be one that is fulfilled. Don't hesitate to write that sentence another way, a second way. Move the clause, another adjective. Because that is, you know, how one, how one works. And it isn't because you've failed. It's because you're in the process of shaping something that is beautiful and meaningful by using these very tiny stitches, uh, little hammers, uh, tools. They go together. Um, you are a jeweler. You are creating a diamond. Or you are a gardener. Or you are a painter. But all of those things require technique, practice. Do you have a question that engages you now for the next novel? So little, such a tiny little question that feels sort of shivery and momentous, but I can't articulate it right now. It's too new. Do you new. know or it's just too fragile? I sort of know about this fragile thing. What do you do next? I let it just sort of steep, see if anything attaches itself to it. 
like an anecdote or a picture or... How does that happen? Oh, it's like I'm a magnet. And then I'll go about my life. And the little... And something's going to jump over and attach itself to this small, frail idea. Something. A name, you know, a shoe, or a day, or just some image. And it'll grow. And then I won't know what to do with it. And then I'll see something disparate in another place. You know, and it'll adjust itself and attract itself to that magnet. Then I know that it's, that something is happening. You know, so that the magnet is really powerful. And I let these images accumulate. So like little nails hovering around. Uh, it's a pole. Then I've got something. That may take two or three years until language arrives and then I get a sentence or a place. Yes, beloved, she my daughter, she mine, see? She come back to me of her own free will and I don't have to explain a thing. I didn't have time to explain before because I had to be done quick, quick. She had to be safe and I put her where she would be. But my love was tough and she back now. I knew she would be. Paul D. ran her off. So she had no choice but to come back to me in the flesh. I bet you baby Suggs on the other side helped. I won't never let her go. I'll explain to her, even though I don't have to, why I did it. How if I hadn't killed her, she would have died. And that is something I could not bear to happen to her. When I explain, she'll understand it because she understands everything already. I'll tend her as no mother ever tended a child, a daughter. Nobody will ever get my milk no more except my own children. I never had to give it to nobody else. And the one time I did, it was took from me. They held me down and took it, milk that belonged to my baby. Nan had to nurse white babies and me too because ma'am was in the rice. The little white babies got it first, and I got what was left, or none. There was no nursing milk to call my own. I know what it is to be without the milk that belongs to you, to have to fight and holler for it, and to have so little left. I'll tell Beloved about that. She'll understand. She my daughter, the one I manage to have milk for and to get it to her even after they stole it, after they handled me like I was the cow, no, the goat, back behind the stable because it was too nasty to stay in with the horses. Well, it was difficult for me because uh, it was writing about things that were unpleasant and imagining things I didn't really want to imagine. Uh, so that's why the um, uh, theme is forgetting. 
everybody in the book is trying to forget or not saying anything about it in the same way that African Americans did try to forget and not say anything about in order to go forward in the same way that I as the writer was trying to manage I didn't want to talk about it I didn't want to think about it so it became all for all of us what do you do with memory or what I called in the book rememory because it is hard because it is not happy but my feeling was too if I didn't have to live it all I had to do was write about it then I should stop whining and stop feeling all sort of precious and just do it also I felt as is true in every life if you don't know your history your personal history you don't have a future all you do is tread water you can't get beyond that it takes a little courage you do feel bad reliving or encountering this but it has to be worth it so I tried in Beloved to say um, everybody in here is unhappy about this ghost uh, but they're dealing with it and you can too and because I know that slavery is very hard for black people to try to remember or recreate calmly it's impossible for white people to do the same thing it's difficult for them so instead of you know ignoring that I would distract them a little bit and have them concentrate on this ghost as the most important thing while I fed them little sips of slavery so that they didn't have to look it straight in the eye and swallow it whole they could look askance as it were and concentrate on something else while they were being you know sort of inundated with this other horror story I mean the point being people said well why a ghost in a book about slavery there are some good technical reasons and logistic reasons but in addition to those it was clear to me that nothing the ghost story is the least amazing of those tales the most amazing and the most outrageous and unbelievable is the slave story if you can believe in the slave story believing in a ghost takes nothing <laughs> but it was a kind of sleight of hand that I would decided upon in order to make those two ideas palatable so that the reader would be willing to go there the movie is a different thing that's so much external images and the nature of a movie is to be blatant it's right up there in your face sort of frontal for me as a writer I don't have to be blatant the scene of the actual slaughter of the baby is buried in the text I can't even find it I don't know where to go but you know it happened you think it happened you want to know why it happened but the actual description of it is very short uh, seen from two or three points of view one of which I read earlier and uh, sort of buried it's the effluvia around it the consequences of it the preparation for it that takes up more 
of the book. Beloved, what was the question? The question was, who is the beloved? Who is the person who lives inside us that is the one you can trust, who is the best thing that you are? And in that instant, for that segment, because I had planned several books around that theme, it was the effort of a woman to love her children, to raise her children, to be responsible for her children. And the fact that it was during slavery made all of those things impossible for her. She couldn't do it. She couldn't be a mother. Yeah. Because, and there was this interesting historical incident, yeah. you know, the Margaret right. Garner story, right. in which that actually happened. There was a great deal of infanticide in order to prevent her from living a life she believed would be intolerable. But that's her claim, you know, kind of a control that she was trying to exercise in order to be simply a mother and that the best thing she was was this lovely child or these children. And of course, that set her on a very complicated, self-destructive journey. But the question was still there. And the answer, or at least the other question, that's delivered is when somebody asks her or tells her, no, no, you are your best thing. You are. Is this journey painful for you? Yeah. Oh, sure. Especially? Well, the slavery stuff yeah. was terrible. Because it's, not, it's one thing to sort of know historically, abstractly, conceptually, generally what it was like. But imagining that life, which is sort of entering it very fundamentally, mm. is very, very difficult for me. And the only thing that made it really possible to stay there, you know, was just little things, just knowing that you couldn't see your husband yeah. in the daytime, only at night, only when the sun was dark, because people worked from sunup to sundown. The only thing that made it really possible for me was thinking, well, I didn't have to do it. I just had to imagine it. So I can't be too self-regarding and precious about all that. It, if they could do it, I could write about it. I mean, I could get tough enough. You say that you found out I mean, this notion that slavery existed for 300 years. And you gave it that length, that time. And 60 million people died because of slavery. I asked around, trying to get figures. Some people said, I don't know, less. 200 million. Some people said 10 million. Yeah. Some people said. So if you think of the like middle passage. People, yeah, well, you know, who kept records? But you look and see how many people died in those ships. How many people committed suicide, jumped off the boats. Right. How many people were rounded up and never made it to the ports. And then how many generations were cut off. You have, it's a nation. It's a real nation. Nations upon nations who did not live. And of course, if you think that the people who did arrive and did stay alive were the strongest and the toughest, I mean they lasted, yes. then you have this race of these sort of giants here in the country. But what was really interesting, me, interesting to me was um, there was no lore about the Middle Passage. Yes. There were no songs about it. There were no poems about it. There are contemporary poems, but it didn't survive in spirituals and gospels, except obliquely, as though these people had to do something extremely important, which was to forget that, in order to get on with the next day. I and mean, if you're going to survive and be around for your children, you just can't stay there. You just can't dwell there in the past. 
But that was a survivalist technique. But at the same time, uh, it's as though those people have never been mourned properly. Could you please, Toni Morrison, share with us your perspective as a writer? Do you need to feel the agony, the injustice of it, in order to have the right to use this theme in your novel? Or to do justice to the theme, do you think you have to rise above your anger and your emotions? Ah. Well, slavery is such a large subject. I wanted to do them justice. I didn't want to make them live happily ever after. Now, it is true that there were moments when I faltered and, you know, I would stop writing for a while until the language was there. But my job was so easy compared to theirs. All I had to do was think about it, write about it, and try to feel it. I didn't have to live it. So I thought, well, if they can endure that life, the least I could do is uh, write about it. But there were moments when it was a little overwhelming for me. Do you think that just to follow on from that question, that the moments when you felt overwhelmed by the material, that was actually bad for the writing or good for the writing? I mean, in other words, is detachment necessary to make the writing effective or is the emotion, in fact, more necessary? The emotion is not good. I, the questioner asked about anger. You see, if you, you, go, you don't get over it, you go through it. So you displace anger because it's just not useful. It's not useful to your gifts. It's not useful to your talent. And you write badly. You got two or three little sentences there of, ah, and then what, you know? <laughs> and then besides, you know, and you look at these people that I'm writing about, and you look at the grammar, they're not burnt up with anger. The one who's burnt up is beloved. The girl, she has a right to be a little upset there. <laughs> So she is distorted by it, and I can write about that, about how it consumed her and turned her into something destructive. But I can't write out of that feeling. I was a little uh, overconfident and very arrogant when I began to be well-known or known at all because I was... A middle-aged woman, I didn't publish, I didn't write until I was 39 years old. So I had already formed a personality. I was an adult. I was a mother. I had a full-time job. And so the vulnerability of um, celebrityhood was, I was never interested in it. It had of no interest to me whatsoever. Uh, I felt my work was extremely valuable and that whenever people complimented me, that's what they were complimenting. So it seemed perfectly wonderful to me. It didn't have anything to do with the person who lived inside. Now, uh, so I was mindful of other people's alterations, expectations, changes, um, the delight you can bring, as well as the resentment, as well as the uses to which people can make of you. I was a 
took authors around. I know how that works, you know, as a publicist and as an editor. I know how to solicit the press and how to manipulate it, et cetera. And, and I see authors successful or not successful in working with their readership. So I thought I was pretty good at the whole thing. But suddenly, in the late years and very recently, maybe it's post-Nobel Prize, but it's not really that. I think it's after being a couple of times on Oprah Winfrey's show. And I felt more and more the disadvantages, which always exist, uh, of being well-known than the advantages. The advantages are overwhelming. I get to have a powerful, active readership, large. I get to be published in 28 languages, and people really know my work and really quarrel about it, and that is ideal. You can't ask for anything better than that. Uh, on the other hand, um, it has other problems. I dismissed them all because they were of no consequence to me. And now I have to do something else. I have to uh, guard myself or prepare myself for other people. I've never done that in my life. I've always been whatever it was, uh, always open or closed based on something that was going on in me, not about somebody outside. And that is, it just sounds whiny to me to go on about that. And it is whiny. But the problem exists when it comes in to the study. There was always the free place for me. Nobody was in there but me, my characters, and the language. Now, when that begins to be meddled with, then I am in trouble. And it hasn't happened, but I feel threatened. And it's something that no one should deal with. It's not the public. This is me. And I was sort of disappointed in myself. Uh, in responding to this celebrityhood. You know, when you think about what it is, I just described three books that were involved in love. How to Love a Child, How to Love Yourself, How to Love a Lover, How to Love God. You know, there used to be all these things we could love, and they were not embarrassing to us. Now the, we want to open that up. How does a woman really love a child? It's not automatic. Caring for children may be, worrying about children may be, protecting children may be, but that's not the same thing. When they're grown up, you know, who they are, when it's specific, what do you do? These are very complicated problems to me. And it seems to me to be the thread that under girds or supports so much human activity is uh, where does our self-esteem come from? Uh, where does our self-loathing come from? Uh, why are we so driven in this direction? Um, what are these little pains and hurts? And it surrounds this question of being deprived of love, being bereft of it, um, therefore never knowing quite how to express it, 
uh, at the same time. Love so powerful, uh, so desperate that you destroy the thing you love most in the world, uh, that you love God so that you're just absolutely transported by it. And the love is so complete and so absolute that you can't bear other people who have another idea about it and don't agree with your love and therefore you expel or kill them. To have your whole life broken apart by or made perfect by romantic love and then to lose the I mean you can see as I'm rambling on and on that these are not simple things and it's much larger than somebody not having love being abused and then abusing somebody else even if for ideal whether you are the where the family is the most loving family in the world you know it's never going to be that flat that simple and that uh, predictable it just seems to me that uh, there's nothing more interesting compelling mysterious and unpredictable you know as the human heart any comments or suggestions for readings i should make in future episodes can be emailed to human voices wake us the number one at gmail.com links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description if you enjoy human voices wake us you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts the music here is duke ellington's arabesque cookie